Hello, my name is Colin McLeod and welcome to Why Life Isn't Fair, a series of nervous ramblings that used to have an introductory joke, but I'm just not feeling it today. <laughs> when I first did these, I thought that intro joke had a lot more steam than it actually had. So next time, I'll try to come up with something at the start of the show that will have you laughing sporadically and chronically for the rest of your life just from the thought of it, just to give the, the, the start of the show the extra oomph, the extra punch, you know. Anyways, uh, this week's episode is akin to a country corner on a Tuesday afternoon on your local radio station that would somehow always coincide perfectly with the journey back from school that was presented by some dude named Paul or John or something that amidst the vibe of a mildly misogynistic middle-aged man. Basically, I'm saying, that's it, we're going back to Winnipeg, and I'm steering the show briefly, of course, into the 1960s political folk scene in New York, but follow me here, I swear to God, it's mildly interesting and the music is quite good. Today's episode is about a personal hero of mine, Phil Ox, and his kind of random adventures through life that would eventually lead to him being detained in Uruguay, deported to Bolivia, strangled in Tanzania, and temporarily losing his ability to sing. But we'll get to that later, this one's, this one's a bit dense. Phil Ox, while often not mentioned in the same breath as the likes of Bob Dylan or Woody Guthrie, is the protest folk monolith, in my opinion. As a wannabe journalist, Phil Ox's ability to somehow write like a journalist and make it beyond tuneful should have been classed as an outlying factor in and of itself, and how he is far and away one of the best protest singers and folk artists to have ever walked the planet. Born in 1940, Phil Ox led a fairly normal life, so I'm not going to bother going through it. Journalistic integrity be damned. <laughs> I'll instead take us forward to 1962. Phil Ox is 22, and he decides to move to New York after dropping out of university in his final year purely out of spite because he was passed up on the chief editor job at his school's newspaper. So, he up sticks and he moves to New York. To New York, sorry, Jesus, I'm a bit illiterate today. <laughs> and fairly quickly assimilates himself in the quickly burgeoning Greenwich Village folk scene, becoming friendly with the likes of Bob Dylan. While their history as friends is often disputed by Ox historians and Dylan historians, one important thing to note that has been confirmed is that Phil Ox was the first man on the planet that wasn't Bob Dylan, of course, to hear one of Dylan's most well-known songs, Mr. Tambourine Man, so take that as you will. In Greenwich Village, Ox started gaining notoriety as one of the scene's most politically clued in and passionate folk singers, singing the civil and workers' rights issues and, on, and the ongoing Vietnam War, while simultaneously gaining notoriety as a activist and a political organiser. Basically, Ox was prolific from the get-go, but unfortunately this energy would slowly deplete as his FBI case file got thicker and the situation in America got more dire. After two years of activity with no recorded releases, Ox released his first album, all the news that's fit to sing in 1964, in which Ox was quickly solidifying himself as one of Greenwich's premier folk artists. While not particularly exciting, the album acts as a foundation from which Ox built upon quite effectively, showcasing Ox's penchant for political satire while simultaneously displaying his natural musical talent and appreciation of the arts, setting the Edgar Allan Poe poem The Bells to song. Right now, I'm going to take a wee break, though, as I could quite easily keep going until my vocal cords broke and looked like a two-string banjo. So I'll play a track off of all the news that's fit to sing, and afterwards I'll get into more of Philox being a political music monolith. Here's the automation song. Stand by. Oh, 
I lay down your railroads every mile of track With the muscles on my arm and the sweat upon my back And now the trains are rolling, they roll to every shore You tell me that my job is through, there ain't no work no more Though I lay down your highways all across the land With the ringing of the steel and the power of my hand And now the roads are there like ribbons in the sky You tell me that my job is through, but still I wonder why For the wages were low and the hours were long And the labor was all I could bear Now you've got new machines for to take my place And you tell me it's not mine to share So I lay down your factories and lay down your fields With my feet on the ground and my back to your wheels And now the smoke is rising, the steel is all aglow I'm walking down a jobless road and where am I to go? For the wages were low and the hours were long And the labor was all I could bear Now you've got new machines for to take my place And you tell me it's not mine to share Though I lay down your factories and lay down your fields With my feet on the ground and my back to your wheels And now the smoke is rising, the steel is all aglow I'm walking down a jobless road and where am I to go? Tell me where am I to go? This is the kind of song I like to think of when I'm feeling edgy and working class when I'm six hours deep into a shift at my retail job with no natural sources of light. Anyways, cut to 1965 and we're still in the guts of Philox's activity as a political activist, playing whatever benefits or marches or conventions would take him as after the death of John F. Kennedy, quick note on that one actually, Philox was so depressed upon hearing the news of his assassination that he was convinced that he was going to die that same night. It was the first and last time he cried in front of his wife. He was quite passionate about the progressive politics of JFK, despite, in, in hindsight, JFK wasn't particularly progressive, but he was sad about it nonetheless. Anyways, back to the point I was trying to get out there. Uh, so Ox was particularly prolific during this time, as it was post-JFK's assassination and the continuation of America's civil rights issues, as well as the American presence in Vietnam, were reaching its boiling point in terms of tensions in the U.S., Protests across the country were intense and plentiful, so Ox pretty much appeared anywhere he could. 1965 is also notable as the first year since 1963 where Ox wasn't invited to play the infamous Newport Folk Festival, where Ox headlined in 63 and 64. This led to tensions within the Greenwich Folk community as Ox felt he was awfully hard done by and essentially severed connections with most in Greenwich, including Bob Dylan. On another note... (laughs) The 1965 Newport Folk Festival was also the infamous first appearance of Bob Dylan with an electric guitar, which was con- commended even, sorry, by Ox himself despite the personal tensions and was universally despised by pretty much everyone else. Uh, 1965 was also an important year for Ox's recorded output, as it was the year in which his second album, I Ain't Marching Anymore, was released, one of his strongest and most critically acclaimed efforts in Ox's entire recorded output. Compiling some of his most politically charged songs to date, it's a near flawless p- piece of politically charged folk, and if early Bob Dylan's work excites you at all, I'd highly recommend checking it out. I'll leave you no- al- alone. Jesus Christ, I'm, I'm doing bad today. <laughs> I'll leave you alone now, sorry. And I will play. There you go, I'm, I'm, I'm over enunciating things though, I should really calm down. 
I'll leave you alone now and I'll play a favourite track of mine out of Phil Lox's entire catalogue. It's called The Highwayman and it's another poetic rendition, this time of the work of Alfred Noyes. It serves as a reminder of the artistic prowess of Ox at the time, after all, he wasn't just an angry liberal. Enjoy. The wind was a torrent of darkness Among the gusty trees The moon was a ghostly galleon Tossed upon cloudy seas And the road was a ribbon of moonlight over the purple moor And the highwayman came riding Riding, riding Yes, the highwayman came riding Up to the old door. Over the cobbles he clattered And clashed in the darkened yard and he tapped with his whip on the window, but all was locked and barred. So he whistled a tune to the window, who should be waiting there but the landlord's black-eyed daughter. That's the landlord's daughter, plaiting a dark red love knot into her long black hair. One kiss, my bonny sweetheart, for I'm after a prize tonight. But I shall be back with the yellow gold before the morning light. Yet if they press me sharply and hurry me through the day, oh, then look for me by moonlight. Watch for me by moonlight And I'll come to thee by moonlight Though hell should bar the way He did not come at the dawning No, he did not come at the noon And out of the tawny sunset Before the rise of the moon When the road was a gypsy's ribbon Looping the purple moor Oh, a red coat troop came marching Marching, marching King George's men came marching Up to the old door, And they bound the landlord's daughter With many a sniggering jest And they bound the musket beside her With a barrel beneath her breast now keep good watch And they kissed her She heard the dead man say Oh, look for me by moonlight Watch for me by moonlight And I'll come to thee by moonlight Though hell should bar the way Look for me by moonlight The feet's ringing clear Watch for me by moonlight Were they deaf that they did not hear For he rode on the gypsy highway She breathed one final breath Then her finger moved in the moonlight Her musket shattered the moonlight And it shattered her breast in the moonlight And warned him with her death Oh, he turned, he spurred on to the west 
He did not know who stood Out with her black hair a-flowing down Drenched with her own red blood No, not till the dawn had he heard it And his face grew gray to hear How best the landlord's daughter Landlord's black-eyed daughter Had watched for her love in the moonlight And died in the darkness there Back he spurred like a madman Shrieking a curse to the sky With a white road smoking behind him And his rapier brandished high Blood red were his spurs in the golden moon Wine red his velvet coat When they shot him down on the highway Down like a dog on the highway And he lay in his blood on the highway With a bunch of lace at his throat And still of a winter's night, they say When the wind is in the trees When the moon is a ghostly galleon Tossed upon cloudy seas When the road is a ribbon of moonlight Over the purple moor Oh, the highwayman comes riding Riding, riding Yes, the highwayman comes riding Up to the old indoor The strange thing about that track, to me at least, is that I know the lyrics aren't Ox's, and actually the poem itself, when it's on paper, I'm not actually a massive fan of it. But as a song, it will never fail to give me goosebumps and maybe a wee tear, depending on my mood. (laughs) Anyways, according to my trusty script, we've now landed in 1967 and we're still very much in the weeds in terms of Phil Ox's story. Ox moved to Los Angeles in 1967 and he signs his first major label deal with A&M Records pretty much in tandem with Bob Dylan's meteoric rise in popularity. Most theorize that this move was Ox trying to get some of the popularity that he felt he deserved, and in hindsight, he probably definitely deserved. And that is the clearest I will ever be in any statement I will make in my life. Phil Ox deserved to be a lot more popular, and I'm making it my life's prerogative to build a time machine, go back to the 1960s, and slap some people around the place with a hurl in hand and a machete in the other for the more stubborn folks. (laughs) With this move to LA, Ox also changed his sound, straying away from the acoustic-driven music he had become known for, and he decided to opt for a more instrumental approach. This change was well and truly cemented in his third studio album, Pleasures of the Harbor, in which Ox received mixed responses. While it was lauded by many critics in LA, New York was a different story. He was essentially panned by many of the critics in New York for his departure, and the infamous Robert Christigel wrote pretty scathingly, quote, his guitar playing would not suffer much if his right hand was webbed. <laughs> I, I disagree, but I wish I had come up with that line myself. The album also got no real commercial buzz despite Ox reorientating his sound for mass appeal, but Ox's lyrical themes, while a lot more abstract and less pointed politically, still was not quite enough to stare Oxmania worldwide. The album itself, to me at least, is near perfect, however, perfectly melding Philox's sound with operatic and alternative instrument- instrumentation, sorry. And while some of the more ballady moments in the album are a bit too cheesy, 
Songs like Cross My Heart and The Crucifixion are among Ox's strongest moments in his career, period. Another weird fact about this album is that it, at the time, it was the longest album to be ever only on a single record. Introducing new techniques and cutting records in order to save money and, and just in the way that the grooves are made into the wax or whatever. Essentially, with how long the album is, it should have been a double album and it wasn't, and that's, that's cool, apparently. <laughs> but... It still offers a great listen, as Ox has yet to lose his ability for near-perfect songwriting and structuring, but what's my word worth when the music itself can say it all for me, and, and better, as, as a matter of fact. Anyways, here's Cross My Hair, a song that'll become sadly ironic by the end of the show, and afterwards we'll get to the slow decline of Philox. I don't know, but it seems that every single dream's painting pretty pictures in the air, then it tumbles in despair, and it starts to bend till by the end it's a nightmare, but I'm gonna give It grows and before you know it
gone from Ox being underappreciated to Ox being underappreciated. Um, he was still heavily prolific as an activist despite his attempts at popularity in music. Ox was heavily involved in the Youth International Party, known most famously as the group that housed the likes of Jerry Rubin and Abby Hoffman. He also helped plan the protests in Chicago that coincided with the Democratic National Convention in 1968. Tensions being high after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. and the preferable Democratic candidate, Robert Kennedy. Ox was a notable figure at the protest and was actually the start of one of the most prominent protest statements used during the anti-Vietnam War protests, the burning of draft cards. Ox was playing I Ain't Marching Anymore and had such a charged response that the first en masse draft card burning occurred. Ox also got himself arrested and bought a pig named Pigasus the Immortal. You gotta love the ancient art of political activism in practice. In 1968, Ox also released his most underrated album by Fair, Tape from California. Panned by critics and not received at all commercially, this album marks Ox's slow decline into irrelevance. And the fact that this album got so badly panned keeps me up at night pretty regularly. Tape from California houses some of Ox's most cohesive songs from this period in his career and is unequivocally political throughout. When, then in 1969, Ox got tired. Dejected after the Chicago riots in which 11 were killed and hundreds were arrested, Ox's slow decline can pretty much be marked from here on onwards. Ox released his darkest work to date with rehearsals, rehearsals sorry for retirement, and while at times raucous and excitable, it's mostly the outlook of a deeply patriotic man who is seeing the death of his country with his own eyes. While not to necessarily be glossed over, Rehearsals for Retirement again was recorded by an utterly dejected Philox, meaning it's pretty far from his strongest work, unfortunately. While not as panned as Tate from California was, you know, grief is always profitable, um, Rehearsals for Retirement was Ox's poorest selling record to date, which actually immediately... Um, fucking contradicts what I just said you gotta, you gotta love the power of ad-lib when you don't know what's coming up in your script <laughs> but anyways uh, retirement rehearsals for retirement I am doing very bad today I'm very sorry about that rehearsals for retirement was Ox's poorest selling record today and was proving to A&M Records that the Phil Ox experiment was about to run its course and on that depressing note I think it's time we play some tunes here is the titular track from Tate from California and when I get back to the talkie bit of the show I'll go into the weirder turn in Phil Ox's career. Till then, sit tight. Yeah. 
Like me, 
That song does not need to be that long, but God knows it lives in my head rent-free. <laughs> now we're at 1970, and to be as nice as possible considering Phil Ox's condition at the time, Ox has fucking lost the plot. He's now decided that his current style of music wasn't cool enough. He needed to be cooler, and he's going to do that by getting a full gold body suit. Yes, Phil Ox has well and truly hit the deep end here, and in 1970 he releases Greatest Hits, his final studio album, and funnily enough, that doesn't mean we're anywhere near the end of this show. How fucking dare you think we were? <laughs> Ox sought his change of direction to appeal to the widest audience possible by essentially, in his own words anyway, trying to meet somewhere in between Elvis Presley and Che Guevara. But in actuality, Phil Ox just made a really weird combination of rock and country. <laughs> There's not much to say here. On my first listen of this album, I, I kind of went from, oh, this is weird, at the first track to, what a waste of 40 minutes by the last. Um, I don't really like this album, if you haven't already ascertained that. And while it has like two good songs, the rest are confounding and pretty disappointing as an end to Phil Ox's recorded output as far as albums go. This album was toured pretty heavily, and Phil Ox believed in it, quite frankly, and bought a residential at Carnegie Hall, which was a dream of Phil Ox's, in which a packed Carnegie Hall was universally confused at the sight of a much larger Phil Ox in a gold bodysuit backed by a four-piece rock band. While he eventually won the audience over at Carnegie Hall, the rest of the tour was not as successful. Drinking heavily and developing a painkiller addiction during this period made Ox a shadow of his former self, and while we have a ways to go before I leave you alone properly, Ox at this stage has declined pretty heavily, and from here on in there isn't going to be much of a discussion about the music itself, more about the life that Ox led during this time. Till then, I'm going to play a track off of Greatest Hits, because if I had to listen to it, you do too, and that's how the fucking game works, buddy. <laughs> here's, here's one way to get home, and afterwards I'll pick it up at the beginnings of the travels of Phil Ox, I alluded to at the start of the show. Till then, enjoy. I like a one-way ticket home, ticket home. Or I can watch my television talk on the telephone. In every town I wander, there's a billboard on a throne. Ticket home, I want a ticket home. Drop me at the matinee, they left without a trace. Take it home, home. I want to take it home. home. Elvis Presley is the king, I was at his crowning. Well, I just flashed before my eyes, I must be drowning. In the sky 
Here's where it starts to get properly dense and will be the first time in the show where I almost stroll into journalistic endeavour, though I'm not very talented, so or we'll, we'll see how this goes. <laughs> in, in 1971, Philox is struggling with writer's block and as he was a socialist, naturally decides to visit the newly Marxist Chile with Jerry Rubin. It is also here that Philox meets and befriends Victor Jarrett, and is also where I go on another tangent. I know it's a bit quick in the segment, but I, I want to talk about it. <laughs> Victor Jarrett, if you didn't already know, was essentially the Chilean Bob Dylan, and was an instrumental part of the rise of Marxism in Chile, which eventually led to the democratic election of Marxist politician Salvador Allende. Victor Jarrett is a personal hero of mine, and the following story is why. In 1973, the coup that led to the General Pinochet dictatorship took place and Jara, as a prominent Marxist, was arrested and imprisoned in Chile Stadium pretty promptly. He was tortured relentlessly and to mock him, the army officers in charge of him smashed his hands and fingers and told him to sing and play guitar. He elected to sing the Chilean Marxist protest song Van Sermos. His tongue was then cut off and he was asked to continue and he did so without hesitation. He was then rather anticlimactically executed by gunshot, but... If you're a socialist and that story isn't invigorating, you're in the wrong fucking game, buddy. <laughs> Cut back to Phil Ox on his merry travels in Latin America. Ox enjoys his time in Chile and then travels to Argentina with fellow activist and political organizer David Ifshin. A fairly uneventful time is had, but then they visit Uruguay and the plot thickens. Phil Ox plays a plays sorry at a communist rally at a Uruguayan university, unaware of just how outlawed any sort of communist activity was in southern South America. Ox and Ifshin were pretty much immediately detained by police and kept in a cell overnight, waking up the following morning and told to board a commercial flight to Argentina with no explanation given. After arriving back in Argentina, they were quickly detained again and after a brief stay in Argentinian prison, of course, a lovely destination for South American tourists, <laughs> they were sent to Bolivia to be executed. While they, they weren't explicitly told that they will be executed in Bolivia, but it was generally agreed amongst communist activists that if you went to Bolivia, you weren't fucking coming back. Um, a lot of the, not the, not the communists, the dictatorship, sorry, in South America were kind of all puppet states of the United States, so they're all in cahoots with each other, so they kind of they, they pass prisoners around like hot potato. <laughs> so anyway, they are put on a commercial flight to Bolivia, and while on the flight they discovered that the pilot of the plane was American. After appealing to the pilot and explaining their pretty fucking dire situation, the pilot agreed that upon their arrival in Bolivia he will do what he could to not allow authorities to board the plane. This plan, surprisingly enough, worked, and as the stop in Bolivia was a layover on the way to Peru, the pair continued onwards far away from Bolivia and hopefully further trouble. However, they weren't completely out of the woods, and as the Peruvian government was, again, in cahoots with the other authoritarian regimes in South America, 
they still feared for their lives. So they the pair parted ways in order to kind of try to avoid detection, I suppose. David Ifshin elected to walk <laughs> back to Chile, and Knox decided to fly back to Chile to try to avoid getting detained once again. Both were, were they were successful, however, but Ifshin wasn't seen for months, and funnily enough, he never explained why. <laughs> Surprisingly enough, despite the scare, Ox still elected to travel once again upon his return to America, this time going to Africa. While this trip was slightly more uneventful, a notable event was his attack in Tanzania. After being strangled and robbed by masked men, Ox found that his voice had been damaged severely as a result of the attack. Feeling that the attack was coordinated by the CIA, Ox's mind state further deteriorated, but we'll get to that after we play one of Ox's more interesting tracks in his discography. Upon visiting Kenya, Ox became enamoured with the music of Kenya and recorded a single with the Pan-African and Jembo Rumbo band. Here is Ox's take on world music, Nico Nico Umchumba Ngombe. Nico Umchumba. Can't say that. Whatever I said when I read it slowly to try pronounce it properly. Anyways, and afterwards, we'll get to the depressing rock bottom of Phil Ox's career. Oh, 
This is the part of the episode that I kind of dreaded making when I first set about making this episode. Um, while this is very much like the Minutemen in that a death is what made their careers a touch more tragic and unfair, the overlying circumstances on this one cut a bit deeper, at least to me. By the mid-70s, Philox had completely regressed due to his poor mental health. He became a crippling alcoholic and was homeless for most of his days, disappearing on his friends for weeks at a time before returning, tainting another relationship as he had the tendency of doing before disappearing again. Ox was fueled by paranoia as he felt he was being tracked and monitored by the CIA and the FBI, and with this he adopted an alter ego, John Butler Train. In Ox's mind, John Train killed Ox and replaced him, but Ox had died many times before that. He died politically during the Chicago riots, professionally after getting assaulted in Africa, and spiritually upon the overthrowing of the Allende presidency in Chile, which would be the final nail in the coffin that led to his adoption of the John Train alter ego. Train would spend most of his days drunk, squandering what little royalties he had from his records and demanding that Colonel Sanders would be his new manager, while often being seen with a weapon, his response to his paranoid delusions. However, this, this phase in Ox's life did fortunately pass. Phil Ox became Phil Ox again, and according to many accounts, he even started writing again. Despite this, unfortunately, Phil Ox committed suicide on April 9th, 1976, in his sister's home in Far Rockaway, New York, leaving no note or will. Uh, Phil Ox's decline in debt to me will always be one of the greatest tragedies seen in politics and the arts. Um... A deeply principled and determined man of Philox's stature in music is, is such a rarity, and to lose it due to a lack of appreciation for his work at the time always gets at me. His music on a professional level galvanized me polit on a personal level, sorry, galvanized me politically and taught me the power a good songwriter can have in one's entire worldview. But on a positive note, as the years went on after his death, many of his most vocal critics made a complete U-turn on Ox's work. Even the album's release later in his discography, it seemed, in hindsight, many began to acknowledge the power of Phil Ox's songwriting, and as tragic as it is, Ox's death did breathe a new lease of life into his recorded releases and solidified him as a martyr, akin to the ones that he spoke about so often in his songs. But the one thing that I'd like to mention to cap off this show is a particular quote from the end of There But For Fortune, The Life of Phil Ox by Michael Schumacher. It was my source primarily for the show and a fantastic read. If this episode has piqued your interest at all, it goes into everything covered on the show and more, and told a lot more eloquently. But anyways, the quote goes as follows. On May 5th, a memo signed by the FBI director Clarence M. Kelly was forwarded to the director of the United States Secret Service. The FBI document deemed Phil to be potentially dangerous because of background emotional instability or activity in groups engaged in activities inimical to the US. Phil had been dead for nearly a month. <laughs> if I'm not deemed a threat by the FBI upon my untimely death, it would be a life wasted. On that, however, I'm going to leave you with one last song and ride off into the sunset until the feeling strikes me and I return with more rambling that will probably not be as convoluted and hopelessly depressing. This has been Why Life Isn't Fair with Con McLeod, and here's When I'm Gone by Phil Ox, and until whenever the feeling strikes me, uh, goodbye and thanks for listening.
There's no place in this world where I'll belong when I'm gone And I won't know the right from the wrong when I'm gone And you won't find me singing on this song when I'm gone So I guess I'll have to do it while I'm here And I won't feel the flowing of the time when I'm gone All the pleasures of love will not be mine when I'm gone My pen won't pour a lyric line when I'm gone So I guess I'll have to do it while I'm here And I won't breathe the bracing air when I'm gone And I can't even worry about my cares when I'm gone Won't be asked to do my share when I'm gone So I guess I'll have to do it while I'm here And I won't be running from the rain when I'm gone And I can't even suffer from the pain when I'm gone Can't say who's to praise and who's to blame when I'm gone So I guess I'll have to do it while I'm here Won't see the golden of the sun when I'm gone And the evenings and the mornings will be one when I'm gone Can't be singing louder than the guns while I'm gone So I guess I'll have to do it while I'm here All my days won't be dances of delight when I'm gone And the sands will be shifting from my sight when I'm gone Can't add my name into the fight while I'm gone So I guess I'll have to do it while I'm here And I won't be laughing at the lies when I'm gone And I can't question how or when or why when I'm gone Can't live proud enough to die when I'm gone So I guess I'll have to do it while I'm here There's no place in this world where I'll belong when I'm gone And I won't know the right from the wrong when I'm gone And you won't find me singing on this song when I'm gone So I guess I'll have to do it I guess I'll have to do it Guess I'll have to do it While I'm here